So this past week, I spent a few hours looking around on the internet. I was uh, researching the crazy stuff that's happening in Egypt. And we don't have cable news, so I have to do all my uh, news looking online. And so I was reading lots of articles, and one article in particular hit me like a ton of bricks. It was an article that featured 91 fairly graphic pictures of men and women and children who were broken and bleeding on the streets of Cairo. My heart broke as I saw uh, uh, all these different people on these streets. I saw a man pleading defenseless, being kicked by riot police. I saw a woman with a burqa on her knees before some soldiers, and you can see in her eyes just how much anguish she was in. I saw probably one of the most difficult things I saw was a, a makeshift morgue. In this building, it looked like a couple grenades had gone off in this room. And there were 50 or 60 bodies piled up. Something else broke my heart as I was looking at these different articles. You may not realize that Christians and in Egypt are being persecuted right now. Christians are being scapegoated, bullied, assaulted, attacked. And some just south of Cairo are even being killed. Churches and orphanages, schools, monasteries, really anything that's connected to the church, they've been attacked, they've been burned down. These are some very dark days for not only Egypt, but for the church in Egypt. And I was reading this stuff and I was thinking to myself, I mean, this stuff really is happening? This has happened, this happened last Friday? While I was checking my email and watching TV and going about my day, this stuff really happens? Yes, it does. It's tough for us to relate to these persecuted Christians. You know, as one South Shore Baptist Church member has said, we live in Disney World here in the United States. I try to relate to these persecuted Christians. I try to put myself in their shoes After the attacks, they wake up and they have to feed their kids and they have to read their Bibles and pray with their families and then they go off to work somehow, emotionally drained, perhaps even physically assaulted. How can these Christians continue to press on? How can these Christians continue to persevere in the midst of such emotional and physical turmoil? It must have been drained and fried. Now, our plight today is not quite like these persecuted Christians. But I would imagine that maybe some of you, some of us today, feel discouraged and weighed down as we come into this place. This morning, we come into this place with many cares on our hearts. We are burdened, we are confused, we are uncertain about a great many things. We desperately need to hear from God. That's why we're here. How can we keep up with the task that God has given us to press on, to persevere? Tasks like love your family, serve within the church, serve outside the church, make disciples, share the gospel, grow in your faith. How do we do this in the midst of discouragement, God's people through time have struggled with this same plight. As we'll see here in Haggai chapter 2, God's people in the Old Testament too struggle with this. So let's turn there. Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 
It's page 937 in your pew Bible. 937 in your pew Bible. We're going to see how God encourages his discouraged people. And as you turn there, I want to give you a little bit of historical review, which is what uh, Pastor Seth did last Sunday. In the 6th century BC, the Persian ruler Cyrus, he captured Babylon. Now, Babylon was a city that was holding a bunch of Jewish exiles. And when Cyrus captured the city, he released some of these Jews to go back to their homeland and rebuild the temple. Now, they were really excited to do this. They started the work, but then their work project stalled out because of opposition from neighboring nations. Now, naturally, they were discouraged, but their discouragement turned into distraction and then disobedience. They stopped building the temple. But more than that, look at verse 4 of chapter 1. God says, is it, a, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? Look at verse 9. God says, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. They were busying themselves with their own paneled houses, and they forgot God's house. So in chapter 1, what God does is he gives a word to Haggai to jumpstart these exiles. He calls them out on their distractions. He calls them out on their disobedience. And he urges them to, to restart the building project. And thankfully, God's people respond positively. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnants of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. So they begin to rebuild the temple. We, cut, we pick up this morning in chapter 2, about four weeks after they start the work project. So let me read now chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them... Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Let's pray together. 
Father, we desperately need to hear from you this morning. We are, some of us, perhaps more than others, discouraged. And so so would your spirit fall upon this place, fall upon me and every person in this room, and would you speak words of encouragement now? We love you, and we look forward to hearing from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this passage, what we'll see is three important realities for God's people. Three important realities for God's people. We see the first reality in verse 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3. God's people, here's the first reality. God's people can become discouraged by all the rubble. God's people can become discouraged by all the rubble. Notice the three questions in verse 3. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? You see, when when these Jewish exiles looked before them at the mess in front of them, all they saw was a magnificent, huge, massive, massive project that they were called to do, and they had a whole lot of work left to do in it. They saw rocks and rubbles. They perhaps saw a simple foundation laid before them, but that's about it. They were undertaking a a project of massive proportions, and they had very little resources. They had very little money, very very few people working with them. It's not like they were just building some simple homes. It's not like they were building a simple marketplace. They were building God's temple. This is really important. And so they were likely discouraged and unmotivated. Now, we don't have the same task before us. God hasn't called us to build a temple, right? Right? But God has called us to build his church, which interestingly enough, Paul, the Apostle Paul, calls God's temple in the New Testament. We are called to build his church, to make disciples. Now, like Israel, we too can become discouraged because of the rubble and the obstacles and the ruin in our way. Just when you thought you made good gospel connections with your neighbors and your coworkers. Something changes. Something goes wrong. You've built these strong ties. You've poured your life into these friendships. You're so excited to share the gospel with them. You're so excited to love them and point them towards Christ. But then something changes and everything goes wrong. Maybe they ignore you now. Maybe they mock you even now. You've lost their favor. Just when you thought you'd overcome that one sin, here it is again, back to bite you. You're back on the same website, clicking on the same images that you know you should not. You're back in the same conversation with the same gossip partner. You're back nurturing that same selfish state of mind that prevents you from loving your spouse or a friend or your children. I feel like my spiritual progress is so stinking slow. You feel like that? It's so slow. It's slower than molasses and slugs and turtles and other things that are really slow. I want to believe that my spiritual progress is three steps forward and two steps back. But more often than not, it's three steps back and one step forward or worse. And so the rubble keeps piling up. The mess keeps piling up in front of us. Now, what about the mess in the church? What about the mess in this church? 
Man, I, I, really, I, I really wish this church could just fix those problems. I really wish this church could just see those particular blind spots. If our pastors could just get their act together, they could just respond to my emails. If the congregation could just stop with their complaints and all their emails... Just like every church, South Shore Baptist Church is messy because we're full of sinners. All of us, sinners. This is messy. Yet God has called us to build up this dirty, smelly thing called church and to present it eventually before Christ as his holy bride. This is our task. More often than not, it feels like it's three steps forward, five steps back. This is what the Jewish people must have felt here in, in Haggai, distracted and disobedient a few steps back, repentant and now rebuilding a few steps forward. But now we see they are discouraged and perhaps unmotivated a few steps back. Notice again the questions in verse 3. The first question, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? Some of the older Jews would have remembered the glory of the past temple Solomon built. It was truly something to behold. It was magnificent. Solomon, King Solomon marshaled all of his resources, which at the time were tremendous, to create this temple that would be like no other. These old-timers remembered this temple probably with nostalgic bliss. Much like my grandmother who loved to speak of the good old days, they too spoke of the good old days of this temple. But now things had changed. The present was very different. Before them was an unfinished mess, totally unlike the glory days of Solomon. Where were those days now? Comparing what God has done in the past to what we think he's doing now can be very dangerous. Comparing what God has done in the past to what we think he's doing now can be very dangerous. The good old days are always rose-colored, right? When I think about the good, good old days, I, I remember the Cosby show. When you could laugh and not feel dirty. What happened to those days, right? We look at past seasons of our spiritual walks with Jesus that were rich and vibrant, and we were so excited. We were so excited. We were learning so much, and we wonder, where is God now? Why am I not experiencing that kind of growth now? Why am I not experiencing that kind of joy now? Why am I not experiencing that kind of deep Christian fellowship now? I remember a time in my life, it was a summer in my early 20s, when I, would, uh, I was working at a bookstore, I would come home each evening, and for whatever reason, God gave me such a passion for his word and prayer that I would commune with him, and it was some rich Deep times that summer. Sometimes I wonder, why not now? We get nostalgic about our church as well. Do we look back on South Shore Baptist Church's former days with an unhealthy fondness? The good old days of South Shore Baptist Church. You know, it was before the building expansion. Things were great then. They were so good. It was before, uh, you know, things now are more complicated. Things then were simpler. God felt more tangible and present back then. 
Maybe the good old days was 30 years ago when South Shore Baptist Church was a smaller church and you knew everybody and the pastor was much more accessible to you. Maybe the good old days for you is another church, a different church in your past. Brothers and sisters, let's be careful of having an unhealthy affection for the past. These are dangerous comparisons because our perspectives can sometimes be warped and rose-colored. And what's worse, we can miss what God's doing now. God has grace for us now. Lamentations 3 says there are new mercies every single morning for God's people. Do you find those mercies? Do you see those mercies? Or are you in the past? So this is the first reality we see in this passage for God's people. Sometimes we are discouraged by the rubble in front of us, and that distracts us from seeing what's just in front of us. But there's good news for the discouraged. The second reality, you'll see that in verses 4 and 5, God's people become strong in his presence. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. God's people become strong in his presence. So the Jewish people, they started this work project sometime late in September. Four weeks later, they needed a halftime pep talk. That's what we get here, a halftime pep talk from God. We see that he's calling the Jewish people to action. Notice the three commands In verses 4 and 5, be strong, work, and then do not fear. Three times he says, be strong. Three times he says, be strong. This is a call to not be distracted by the past due to all of the rubble and stuff, but to focus their efforts on the present. There was a task in front of them. They needed to keep working at it despite their doubts and fears. Now, this isn't just a pep talk. If it were just these three commands, then it would be a pep talk. My high school soccer coach uh, would inevitably give a melodramatic pep talk at halftime. And it boiled down to four words. You can do it. You can do it. Now, if you had the athletic prowess that I had, then you would hear these words and think very quickly, actually, I can't do it. (laughs) Thanks for uh, the pep talk, but I can't. Now, what makes this more than just a superficial pep talk is the grounds for these three commands. There are, there's something foundational underneath that energizes and motivates and push, pushes God's people towards action. Do you see what it is? You see what it is in verse 4 right at the end? For I am with you. God says, I am with you. With you, What is it that grounds these imperatives? What is it that motivates and energizes these imperatives? God's constant, unrelenting, pervasive presence in the lives of his people. In verse 5, God says, My spirit remains among you. The Hebrew verb form there denotes continuous action. So it's like God is saying, I was with you, and I'm going to be with you. That is what strengthens them. That is what will help them not to fear. That is what is going to motivate them to work. Look again at verse 5. 
This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. Interestingly, God does point to their past. He does point to their past. He points to the time when he pulled them out of Egypt. He delivered them, brought them to the foot of the mountain, his mountain, and he made a covenant with them. And as a part of that covenant, he promised something. Now, what he promised wasn't that he's going to take away all of the junk and the rubble and the mess in their lives. What he did covenant with them is that he's going to be with them through it all. This is God's word to us this morning. It's like the soccer coach gives you the pep talk and then he gets on the field to play the whole game with you. Now, of course, we're assuming that he's got some skills. And that would be encouraging. That would motivate. That would inspire. That would energize us, wouldn't it? That's what we need, and that's exactly what God provides his people. He provides his people himself amidst the rubble. He provides him his, his own presence. He doesn't make the mess disappear, but he shows up in it. Now, instead of being trapped in the past, we need to look for present evidences of grace. Do you have eyes to see present evidences of God's grace Do you have eyes to see special manifestations of God's presence in your life? Do you see that? Do you have eyes to see God in the midst of your rubble? This is God's word to us this morning. I am with you. That's what he's saying. I am with you. He sees the rubble and the mess. He sees the dysfunction. He sees the broken marriages. He sees the depression. He sees the anger and the shame and the guilt. He sees the pride and the self-loathing. He sees it all. He sees a church that desperately wants to press into him but has a lot of stuff going on, a lot of mess. He sees all of this and he says, I am with you. I am with you. Will you hear this word this morning and be called to action Will you be strong? Will you work? Will you abandon fear? God has this church in a unique season. It's not the season, uh, it's, it's not the same season as it was two or ten years ago. But it's a season where he promises to be with us. So let's not linger in the past nor despair because of the present rubble. Let's look for God's presence and go to action. So, God's people can be discouraged because of the rubble. That's the first reality. Yet, God's people can be strengthened by his presence in the midst of that rubble. That's the second reality. Now, let's look at the third, which is found in verses 6 through 9. Let me read this passage. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord. Here is the third reality. God's people find hope in the future temple. God's people find hope in the future temple. Notice that God is referred to here five times as the Lord Almighty, which literally means the Lord of hosts. That's, that's, that's in the original language. And that's a name used in the Old Testament when emphasizing God's sovereignty, authority, and his power. Notice also that we're moving from what God has called his people to do 
in verses 4 and 5 to what God now calls, well, what God promises that he will do in verses 6 through 9. So in other words, the Lord of hosts, the God who reigns over all things, the God who owns all things, is harnessing all of his resources to get this project done. He's calling his people to build the temple, but he's involved very much as well. And nothing is going to stop this project. So we should be encouraged. We should be encouraged that, be, that, that God's presence isn't just highfalutin religious language that has some psychological effects. God's presence actually means something. He steps within time and he does something. It means God acts within time. Now, what, now parts of what we see in this passage, parts of what we read here, happened within human history. The temple was completed in four years using resources from other nations. And the temple that, that was built, I mean, it was a beautiful, glorious temple. Later, Herod the Great expanded and adorned this temple. But we know in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. So these words in Haggai were only partially fulfilled in history. And that means its ultimate fulfillment is in the future. Something more is coming. Look at the apocalyptic language in this passage. He's going to shake the heavens. He's going to shake the earth. He's going to shake all the nations until this eternal temple is complete. A place that will forever be filled with his presence. A place with greater glory than any past temple. A place that will grant everlasting peace. God is looking to build an eternal dwelling place with his people. Now, I want to close with a story. Once upon a time, there was a temple. And this temple was a garden temple. And in this garden temple, God walked freely with Adam and Eve. They enjoyed unhindered, uninterrupted fellowship. And it was beautiful. But then something happened to this garden temple. Something disrupted this beautiful relationship. Adam and Eve said to God, they defied him, and they said to him, no, you know, we're going to find our satisfaction, we're going to find our joy outside of your presence. And so God banished them from the garden. He withdrew his presence from them. Fast forward a few thousand years and God forms a new people for his glory, the Israelites. And he gives them a new temple, a physical place of worship where God would uniquely reside. But this temple also had restrictions and limitations to God's presence. There were boundaries in this temple. There were sacrificial institutions. There was the Holy of Holies where only one priest could enter once a year. So God dwelled with his people in this temple, but it had limitations. Meanwhile, the psalmist would speak to the inner longings of human hearts. They would say things like, One thing I would ask that I would seek, that I may dwell in the courts of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. They would say things like, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else. Meanwhile, the prophets would speak of a Messiah who would come and rescue God's people from their sins by dying for them. 
And they would call this Messiah Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this God-man came to earth as the new temple. And he would say things like, destroy this temple, and in three days I'm going to raise it up again. And so God once again dwelled with man. And Jesus showed us the Garden of Eden a little bit. But then he left us. And he left behind the church. But he also left us God's Spirit. And today God dwells with us, his church, through the Spirit. And so now even we get glimpses of Eden. But even what we see and what we experience, it's not complete. There's something more coming. Now turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, it's 1230 in your pew Bibles. This is where we see the end of the story of the temple. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud cry from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Now look down at verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Do you see echoes of Haggai chapter 2, 6 through 9 in what we just read? Do you see connections? Do you see fulfillment? What God is doing here in Revelation 21 is taking us back to the garden. He is taking us to a time where there will be no temple because the dwelling place of God will be with man. There will be no more rubble. There will be no limitations and restrictions to God's presence. There will only be God and his people. There will only be Jesus and the church. One day, one day we will be with flesh and blood Jesus. One day we will be with him face to face, eyeball to eyeball. What will you do when you see him for the first time? What will you do when you realize that everything that is unfinished has been finished in your life and in the church? Will you fall down prostrate before your creator and redeemer in worship? Will you bury your face in the good shepherd's chest 
and weep for joy? Will you stand there in stunned silence, in awe, before the king of the cosmos? What will you do when the dwelling place of God becomes the dwelling place of man? I don't know what I will do, but I long for that moment. I long for unhindered, uninterrupted time with Jesus. This is what the Bible starts with in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. This is what the Bible closes with in Revelation chapter 21. And this is the ultimate fulfillment of Haggai 2. This is the greater glory of the temple. This is the ultimate peace that will be granted. This is the place where the treasures of all the nations will be gathered in to worship God, including the Egyptians and the Sri Lankans and all the South Shore Christians. Brothers and sisters, don't be discouraged by your unfinished mess because he is with you. He is with you. Do you believe that? So be strong, work hard, and hope for the day when experiencing his presence will be as normal as breathing the air. Let's pray. Father, we do long to be with you. And Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, for that Messiah, for Emmanuel, who came here to be with us, who lived a perfect life, who died a brutal death, who was raised to new life after three days, so that sinners like us can be with you forever. And Father, we long for that day when we see Jesus face to face. Until that day, Father, help us to press on. Give us a sense of your presence in our lives now. Help us to see. Give us eyes to see evidences of your grace. I pray for those who are hurting and discouraged in this building. Father, would you encourage them? Would you especially encourage them with your presence? Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.